0: All right, all right. Welcome aboard, everybody, to the Stem Cell Podcast. Uh, Welcome to episode one. We're doing in vivo reprogramming and mini brains, just a few of the topics we're going to talk about today, some of the stuff that's hot in stem cell news. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano, one of the hosts. I got my man, Dr. Yosef Gannat, on the other end. What's up, Yosef?
1: How's it going? How's it going? You know, one of these days, I'm going to let that song play all the way through. That's a. A nice little. It sounds sciency to me for some reason. One day, I think you heard it. For, you can't hear the music live, but you've heard the intro song. So uh, that's actually a poolside song, "Planet Caravan." So if anybody's ever "Planet wondered, Caravan," yeah, just... yeah, the original is like a Bauhaus or something. "Planet Caravan" is the name of the song, and "Poolside" made it this sciency. I thought
0: was good for science, but anyhow. Just so, the name, just the name "Planet Caravan" sounds fairly sciency. I like that. I'm into that, man. Yeah. So, how you been? I'm pretty good. Things good. Everything uh, research moving along. Life's good. How about you, man? Works well. Oh yeah,
1: works works going well. Works going well, and uh, we've got a lot to talk about in the stem cell I world. Know. But uh, before we do, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a little break from the stem cell world and just briefly, I'm gonna run some papers by Chris, some new data that's come out in the world because. He's, you know, being a PI, which is a, somebody who has his own lab, and me, being a postdoc, I uh, listen to podcasts while I'm in the lab. So, uh... All right, so I get to learn something in, a, in this episode, too,
0: man. I'm pumped up. Let's well, get it rolling. Well,
1: there, there's some hot stuff. Uh, did you know that Voyager one, Interstellar? Uh, Voyager launched, what, 40 years ago? It's in, It's left the the cloud of our solar system, the sun's magnet well you know it's fear of influence it's now gone interstellar
0: i'm wondering i had i did not know interstellar how many times how many times use that in a conversation not very often huh? Uh,
1: well (laughs) it only comes around once a lifetime exactly exactly that's pretty cool man sort of like Haley's comet um there's a lot of... Did you know uh, they actually had a successful... In September in Science, they reported a successful malaria vaccine, which apparently we've had the ability to uh, vaccinate people with malaria, which kills like half a million to a million people a year. It's like mostly children. It's pretty staggering, the numbers. but um, Does
0: it really kill that many people? That's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, so you never hear about it or see it. But like... <laughs> It's 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 really a big problem, and uh, this would be a huge deal in terms of uh, saving lives. And uh, it's basically we've been able to. uh, uh, You can vaccinate somebody, but it takes a thousand irradiated
0: mosquitoes. (laughs) That's how many bites. Yeah, that's how many bites you have to get. (laughs) Are they looking for people to collect mosquitoes? Because I got a whole bunch in my backyard. I'm sure they can steal from me that I would be happy to give away. Well, they'd have to have. Malaria I, too. I I <laughs> well,
1: I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I hope they don't have malaria. Anyhow, so they were able to isolate it f- uh, from these irradiated uh, mosquitoes and inject it intravenously, which isn't uh, practical on the large scale, but it, it's a great proof of principle that I. It's been one of the holy grails. It's like Alzheimer's, uh, re- you know, the, one of the big ones. Malaria is one of the big wow. ticket items. It's like That's the impressive. Costco That's... of. Uh, <laughs> public health um, that's
0: pretty cool man that's awesome
1: yeah so i thought that was cool actually speaking of alzheimer's uh, an old colleague of mine i guess i could call him that uh steven Stripmatter at yale we we worked on a project back in the day when i was there on a hypoxia project he just uh came out with a big discovery in neuron about an alzheimer's drug that attacks a beta prion uh, slash particles you know the whole model of uh, Alzheimer's and it's spreading and all these things. But uh, one of the ways it spreads between the synapses is uh, through mGluR5. It's
0: a glutamate receptor. Yeah, or like one an of an the old receptor?
1: metabotropic guys, one of those old school guys. So there are some off-target effects to blocking mGluR5, but they were able to show quite nicely that it nearly reversed the memory. Effects in these mice, so uh, wow. they're really excited about that. Wow. he's got a whole company cool. uh so expect to see more of that uh in the future if it's really true and um it's what's interesting is there's actually uh therapies going on for uh fragile X syndrome, so there's already some you know drugs in the clinic being tested towards that target, so maybe quicker than you know your normal major neuro discovery and hmm. getting into the labs so um what else we got some Lasker awards given out you you know Thomas S- Sudoff saw that. Sudoff over at uh Sudoff or Sudoff over at S- Stanford. Sudoff yeah yeah he's uh apologies
0: the, if we're getting that wrong we do yeah, our best with the names here
1: that guy's way bigger than you and i anyhow um so yeah he got the award and his colleague Richard Scheller... Also shared it with him for uh, basically synapse biology. I mean, those guys have really characterized vesicle release and the snares and everything. (laughs) I mean, he's the man. So they deserve it. And also for a cochlear implant. Um, So that was, yeah, yeah. So that's some interesting stuff. There was some dubious research of diatoms in the stratosphere. These people claim they, they put one of those air balloons up into the skies, into the stratosphere, and they collected some diatoms, you know, those little microscopic yeah, creatures. Yeah. And uh, they claim that they came from outer space. And therefore, seed theory uh, is true. But it was published in the journal, the prestigious journal of cosmology, <laughs> which is not a very uh, prestigious journal, but... um. The authors think that it came from out of space. most people think it came from i don 't know a uh, volcano explosion or some sort of contamination, but we'll see by the radio tracer or whatever the isotopes levels if it came from space or not so i
0: so some, dude, some of those things are crazy. Those studies just like are like so I sometimes think stuff we do is complicated or like I uh, like sometimes like uh, you know way out but those, I read some of these these studies and I'm just like, what yeah. Well, a lot Phy- of th- phytoplankton in outer space or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like, basically
1: phytoplankton <laughs> flying around in the stratosphere with oh no no home, just floating around. It's kind of fun to imagine diatoms floating in space. Oh, man, that's pretty wild. But, uh, uh, there was also an interesting study on HIV uh, cell line that uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with HIV, like the co-receptors blocking its entry into the cell, and then this MX2 gene, uh, when it's on, the HIV can't replicate. There's, there's been a lot of stuff going on uh, with some of the co-receptors and this gene uh, I just mentioned. So things are looking up and up for HIV uh but, but you
0: know, on, the, on that note, the other thing I was reading recently uh, is that um, HIV infection rate is down 33% worldwide Oh, that's so. It's a one. We've had a one-third reduction in infection rate, which is incredible. I so think. what is that's... that?
1: Education and condoms at work, or I th- I think so. I think it's a or education. What if you just sort of cleared off the initial wave of population that? that disease could affect. I mean, it had devastating effects in the gay community in New York. I know that much. Yeah,
0: and that's an interesting, I guess it's a philosophical thing. I mean, I wonder if you can really back that up with data. I mean, it, it, that would be sad if the reason why you had a reduction is because those people are now died off and you lost those people. Like, you lost the, basically the, the transmission that would keep going. I hope it's not that. I really, I, I would like to think. No, it's, it's got to be condom use. I mean, the, the
1: people were not using protection back then so much as they are now at least i hope so right i mean
0: i mean there's no reason not to right
1: yeah I, with everything
0: we know i mean yeah all right
1: so anybody out there start wearing your condoms use protection um, yeah everybody <laughs> wear your hat when
0: you wear your hat in the rain that's what i yeah. always say you know
1: and uh <laughs> lastly but not least i would have to say gut bacteria i just want there have been so many papers out on the gut bacteria and one showed that if you that i love the name of this repopulate uh they call it repopulating the bacteria in people's guts so they do these essentially fecal transplants where uh it's, uh, it's been shown to affect weight if you change you know human batman bacteria into a lean about this, yeah, this so into a lean mouse you can have different effects than with a you know a lean human bacteria and affect the weights of the mice and so repopulation is not only something that's been i mean they're using it a lot for c difficile you know that bacteria it it causes diarrhea and can even cause death um They use it for that disease and some have recommended it for things like Crohn's and all this stuff. So repopulation, I think you'll be hearing a lot more of it. And it's amazing how much it affects things from, you know, the weight of an average person within a family. I always wonder how that happens where you have like one fat person in the family or...
0: Yeah, I've saw, I saw that too. I mean, like, what happens there? And like, what are you going through as that guy? Are you Are you at the family function looking around the table being like, what, really?
1: Yeah, did or you know d- did, did he get the, you know, the bad bacteria back in the day somehow? Or what happened with I his
0: microbiome? I don't know, but all I know is that I better be going through some serious stuff to go through some sort of repopulation experiment. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> a, the,
1: a fecal transplant sounds so gross. I, oh. don't, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. So Well, you know. know. So that's what's going on in the non-stem cell world. Uh, you you have something you want to discuss in the stem yeah, cell so, world.
0: So thanks, man. I think that that that's really good because sometimes we get real kind of, uh, you know. Real focused on the world of stem cells. It's good to branch out and see what else is going on in the world of science. This is the stem cell podcast, so let's get back into the world of stem cells. There was a lot of hot stuff out in the past month or two, too much for us to get done, and obviously in one episode. But you know, we're gonna we're gonna continue to feed you some information. Um, we're gonna talk about two two studies uh, in this uh, in this podcast, but we're gonna focus right now on on one that was recently published in Nature um and this is, has to do with read the process of reprogramming you're going to we're going to talk about this a lot it's a real hot topic in stem cell biology and and the second story that we'll that we'll we'll get into we're really excited about we actually have uh one of the authors a senior author on the on the paper is going to call in and and go over that with us so uh Yosef and I will talk about this one and then we'll move a little bit later uh, to that call and, and talk about that paper. This, that was the uh, mini brain paper where they kind of created these little mini cerebral organoids in culture. So, yeah, Yos, know, in nature. So, the first uh, paper was called Reprogramming in Vivo Produces Teratomas and IPS Cells with totipotency Potency Features. And so, the one thing that really struck me in the first and the title is totipotency, Potency. Right. Yeah. So, for,
1: yeah, I, right, I, we got to talk about that word right there.
0: Yeah, so for everybody out there right Totipotent. potent you hear the word potent potency uh, potency really is the ability of a cell type to turn into things how potent it is right is you know how many things it can turn into so a totally potent cell can turn into Every cell in the body, including the extra embryonic layers like the placenta, trophectoderm. You, you know, know, it's
1: so funny that word is like the. It's like the word that's never mentioned by stem cell scientists because it's such a. You know, to to achieve totipotency is like it's like the hat trick of stem cell.
0: it's it's, and it's so against us as a scientist to always to be a hundred percent right so like potency implies that like it that's it you know
1: so when we write grants or whatever talk about stem cells we usually say pluripotency which is basically everything but i guess trophectoderm or contribution to the placenta which is what stem cells traditionally have been able to do at least uh more so with mouse they don't tribute to the trophectoderm, Uh, but, you know, there's various evidence that human ES cells can, and so, but regardless, the difference between pluri and toady is just this sort of everything but uh, placental tissue, and... These mice, this this row, is that what happened in the paper? I mean, I didn't read it, so.
0: So, so here's, so here's, so, so that's really the first thing that struck me, right? So, like, you know, the in vivo. So let's let's first go back. Let me give the authors some credit. So I I always like to give credit where credits due. So this paper was published in Nature. The first author on the paper is Maria Abad, and the uh, senior author is Manuel Serrano. Uh, I believe they're out of Spain. Uh, Yes, they're the tumor suppression group in the Spanish National Cancer uh, Research Center in Madrid, Spain. Beautiful place. Um, So everybody's familiar with in vitro reprogramming, right, Yost? We do it in the lab all the time. It's basically uh, Shinya Yamanaka, won the Nobel Prize, takes these four factors, um, KLF4, OCT4, uh, MYC, and SOX2. uh, And you express them in uh, fibroblasts or some sort of somatic cell, and it could reprogram the cells back. To a pluripotent like cell, and that cell then can differentiate into all different things. Okay, so what while this is routinely done, what has yet to be done is kind of doing this in vivo inside of an organism. You know, now, I never even thought of doing it, I, you I, know, it never yeah. even occurred to me. Me neither. To be quite honest with you, and I think I think it's more. I'm trying. You know, let, let's go through it, and we can talk about the implications. Because I think I think I'll, I thought this was really cool. Some of the thing kind of is kind of eerie about the study. Um, uh, but well, we'll let's let's just go through it and, and real quick, and we'll explain what they did. So technically, what they did, what did they do? So what they did was they created these transgenic mice, right? And these transgenic mice expressed those four factors under a doxycycline regulated system. Okay. okay. So what they did was they fed these mice drinking water that had dox in it. So as they drank it, those genes turned on. All right? And what they first found was that that high dose of dox killed them all. So they had to, like, titrate it down. What they found was that on the right dose, the animals survived, but then they were just, like, overtaken with masses and tumors. And when they went in and did the histology, they found that there were these massive teratomas everywhere. So teratomas, obviously, is a hallmark of pluripotency and of ES cells. If you take an embryonic stem cell or an IPS cell and you graph that into a under the skin of a mouse, it would generate ter- teratomas everywhere. It's one of the hallmark assays of pluripotency. So they looked in the histology. They found markers of embryonic stem cells and pluripotency markers in these mass ter- teratomas. So, so what they found was they can generate IPS cells in inside a live animal. Okay, so bye. when
1: you say IPS, you mean induced pluripotent stem cell, and correct. Uh, before this was all done in a dish, like you said, and now it's kind of creepy that they did it in vivo because it's sort of like reversing development in a live creature, and much like you would expect, stuff kind of got like haywire, and it turned into sort of like tumor. I, like I mean. That's what you would expect if you irradiated a mouse. Is some sort of tumor biology like what happened? But that's what a stem cell state is like, essentially in a I, yeah adult. If you took,
0: if you took, if you took iPS and transplanted them into a mouse, you would get teratomas, right? So this is what they did, but they didn't do that. They just turned on the genes but in the certain- in the body.
1: Certain tumors were ha- – like the intestines had more pluripo- – and there were these traveling ones as well, right, in the yeah, blood. And-
0: <clears throat> so a couple things that they did. So the first thing they did – you know not the first but along lines of their experiments. They, they knew from previous literature that hematopoietic stem cells can, um, can be reprogrammed uh, efficiently. And so what they did was they, they did this kind of – this is kind of a cool experiment. They took bone marrow from the reprogrammable mice. So the mice that has everything under the docks. And um, they transplanted that into irradiated wild-type marrow, okay? Mm -hmm. Then they did the opposite. They took marrow from wild-type, and they put that into the irradiated reprogrammable mice. And what they found is that in either system, teratomas were formed. Mm -hmm. All right, so what the conclusion was is that you you can generate in vivo IPS cells from stem cells, hematopoietic precursors. Or non-stem cells, and that's when they did all the histology and found that they're in the intestines. They're, you know, they're they're in all these different places. So they found that you can generate iPS cells in vivo from stem progenitor populations and from non. Okay, so you can basically, in essence, get these iPS cells from all different types of cells in the body. All right. So then the creepy thing, man, was they they drew blood. So then they're thinking, like, all right, are these are there circulating iPS cells in the blood? Um, so. What they did was they isolated blood. They took the blood cells fraction, you know, took the cell fraction from the blood, uh, placed them in human embryonic stem cell conditions, and they got IPS colonies popping up, Hmm. which suggested that, like, these animals, once you turn these genes on, in their blood, because the bloods, the cells in the blood are capable of turning into IPS colonies be grown in culture, which is kind of freaky, you know, because you can imagine, like, a little IPS cell floating through the bloodstream, you know?
1: Yeah, it's a little time bomb. It's, it is. And it's that's, kind of scary to be honest. I mean, yeah, but I, it, I, I think it's more than the cool factor, and more than the, uh, I don't know. What I like that experiment where they put it into the non doxy mice. That's that's a cool idea. And uh, I, it, I, I, j- besides all that, I think it's just uh, amazing that they reverse development
0: in vivo. I think I think really the most for me, the most interesting part is the is the kind of the gene comparisons. So so what what does that mean? So what they did was it took these cells, right? They took the IPS colonies generated inside the mouse. And then they did deep sequencing analysis. So they do this is this new technology, RNA seq, this deep sequencing. And so what they did was they compared um, in vivo IPS cells. In vitro iPS cells, so cell in iPS that's traditionally generated in vitro. And then they took human embryonic stem cells and they did this deep seek. And when they clustered them, well, they found that they were all relatively similar, right? Globally. But when they really looked, the, the in vivo iPS cells. Which were... ones
1: did they choose? The ones that were in the blood or the uh, stem cell one? I mean, the intestine ones or the brain? I mean, there were all sorts of iPS cells, right? Say it again. Uh, Which ones did they sequence, the, the IPS cells that they isolated from the in vivo, from the mouse, essentially? Which ones did they sequence, ones that were floating around the blood or in the intestine or all of them? Uh, which one did they, they I sequence? Think they,
0: I think they took random clones. I think they okay. took like
1: six different clones from uh, their, took... the, the, the metastasized ones. Or right, so, yeah,
0: right. I think this is. I think they took them out and they generated the in culture. Okay. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure of the origin of the okay. cell origin. Um, and so what they found was that all all were similar, but the in vivo, um, were more so. So the in vivo were more similar to the human ES than the, than the in vitro IPS was, and they had these certain genes, right? So, so this, is, this
1: has been going on for a while. A lot of people think that human ES uh, no, is... It's, it's, human, it's,
0: it's, it's, it's the human is more epiblastic, and the mouse is more blastocytic, so you have, like, a mouse ES is, like, more like the blastocyst, and the human ES is more like um,
1: I always this, have problems with this just because human can generate trophectoderm and how's the mouse more of a ES a ground state and more developmentally restricted but anyhow I I, I always so got it I, confused because of that I, I think
0: I think that human ES can generate trophectoderm just not efficiently and so what they found what they found here is that the in vivo iPS cells are not have have differences from human ES in, and and from the iPS so the iPS cells in vitro and human ES cluster very closely and the in vivos kind of fall away from them and so when they look there are some genes really key pluripotency genes they identified in these in vivo IPS cells that they think confer this potency. so what they did did was they took these in vivo IPS cells and then they started to uh they differentiated them into the trovectoderm and they got this dramatic dramatic differentiation into trovectoderm they can even make these like yolk this like yolk plug-like cells that were kind of innervated. So they were really – they were almost able to make the the yolk sac in a way, the cells that contribute to the yolk sac, which human ES cells don't do. Um, And so what they concluded in the end is that in vivo IPS cells possess kind of a cell autonomous capacity to produce these like embryo-like structures. I mean even
1: even mouse ES cells uh, couldn't do that unless you're talking – uh you know unless you made lines and they became germline um and created you know and the contributed to the F2 or F3 generation like the if you're going to use es cells to make mice which is what we do for all the knockout models right uh,
0: yeah yeah should I, I,
1: should we be using this more totipotent cell or does it even matter i mean
0: I think you would get into philosophical arguments with, with people on this. I, I mean I'm, I'm of the school where uh, for me, I could generate the lineages that are relevant that I'm studying, right? And I feel like most diseases you'd be able to you know, – we're not trying to recreate an embryo. We're not trying to recreate a human. Therefore, we're probably not going to need to recreate the yolk sac. Um, but it's, it's a developmental feat, a developmental biological feat that people are trying to accomplish. How come a human embryonic stem cell is not truly totipotent? How come it's always just drifted a little bit further down the hill? And these people, this, this group uh, argues that if you reprogram in vivo, there's something inside the, this mouse or this organism that allows, allows it to acquire this totipotent state. And you know, Yos better. you know just, just as me. You're only as good as your culture conditions, right? So in vitro, this is all done in culture. You're missing key signals. Yeah. in vivo there's a whole plethora of signals so so it's probably very well nourished very well signaled very well supported so it could be that these cells are more totipotent i don't know if they're suggesting you know you should use this method as a way to reprogram um i i i think it's just it's more from a developmental biological feat that they've done this um i'm trying to um understand the direct application in humans right because you can't gener- i can't i can't make i can't put those factors inside of you yos and turn them on and get ips colonies out of your blood you know yeah. so
1: i mean uh i guess at the end of the day does the totipotent state really even matter that much if for i mean maybe it does for humans but hey we're not going to do this in a human context day eh? right no so I mean, I'm, I'm this aware. this is like i mean uh I does I guess does the toady the immediate toady potency because like when people take mouse ESLs, say they knock out a gene, and then they put that into, you know, an egg essential and, and create a knockout mouse line, uh that that line propagates and you know, eventually those stem cells are gonna get reprogrammed and contribute to the F two generations placenta or whatever. It's gonna essentially be totipotent so this is more immediate totipotency
0: does it matter I, I, I don't think that, I, I think that that question can now I think what they're saying is now they can answer that question so I think now with a readable source of potent stem cells they'll be able to study the differences between that and a pluripotent cell and really see if it matters so if if, if that's the case you know that's great we're going to learn a lot about yeah because uh, who's
1: making yolk sac and who, who wants you know who and trophectoderma, I, I assume there are models out there in disorders, but I, I can't
0: think of any offhand, uh, so. I mean, I think from a developmental – pure, like I said, from a developmental biological perspective, I think it's a cool feat. I think it's a little – for me, it was honestly a little bit eerie to think that you were uh, putting uh, – riddling a mouthful full of uh, – teratomas and then pulling them out and growing them in a dish, but from a developmental biological perspective, it's cool that this you have the ability to readily, readily make a totipotent cell, uh, and and now you know be able to study them in a dish and compare them to what a pluripotent cell is. So from that perspective, it's definitely um, cool. I mean, this is a
1: really cool, cool paper. It's really uh, cool. it's 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 definitely nature worthy, right? It's in nature. Yeah,
0: definitely nature worthy and really, and really, really cool. So, congratulations to the group. Um, it was a really awesome, awesome. I think it's
1: yeah, it's definitely cool. And so is the next paper we're going to discuss.
0: Uh, why don't you introduce? So the next paper we're going to talk about today, Yosef, is a paper that was recently published uh, this month in Nature. It's actually really cool. It's kind of right up our alley, and it's called uh, "Cerebral Organoids Model Human Brain Development and Microcephaly." Um, and the first author in the paper is Madeline Lancaster, and the senior author is Dr. Jürgen Noblich, and, and they are out of uh, the Institute for Molecular, Bi- molecular Biotechnology the Austrian Academy of Sciences. And actually, we're really, really lucky tonight to have Dr. Uh, Noblich joining us. Um, welcome aboard, Dr. Noblich. How are you? I'm very fine. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. So, um... Why don't we start here? Why don't, why don't you introduce your, yourself and in your lab focus, what, what you do in the lab, and then maybe you can kick it off and just tell us, you know, in a, in a summary style, uh, the findings
2: in the paper, and we'll, we'll just kind of go from there. Okay, so my name is uh, Jurgen I'm I'm, I'm I'm a scientist at the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology in Vienna. And my lab is interested in uh, the biology of uh, stem cells. We're doing basic research trying to understand how stem cells are able to generate, at the same time, both cells that continue to be stem cells, but also other cells that replace cells in the body. And that's actually the secret of why stem cells are so um, important for maintaining our uh, tissues. And actually, my lab has been using a number of model organisms, particularly the fruit fly, drosophila, uh, but more recently also the mouse. And so these human model systems are actually quite new to us. As it turns out, the development of our brain and the neural stem cells are actually very different in the way they act between the mouse and the human. And these were things that were actually found out in the past two years. And so this cries out for a system that we can actually use to study uh, the the function of neural stem cells in a human setting. And that's why my name Lancaster, a postdoc in my lab, has uh, set out to develop a model system that we can use to actually study Uh, the development of the human brain. And basically what she does is she starts off with uh, human uh, embryonic stem cells, or iPS cells, and generates what we call an embryoid body, which is basically a mass of differentiated cells. And uh, she then puts these into what we call a neural induction medium, which only leaves the so-called neural tube, which is the part from which the brain develops. Uh, And then she puts this into a... 3D matrix, which we call, which is called matrix gel, which uh, forms a support for those um, uh, cells to actually grow into a three-dimensional tissue, and then she places this into a spinning uh, bioreactor, which is simply a, a flask with a tissue culture medium that is stirring very slowly. And uh, what she then found is that uh, within the course of a couple of weeks, these uh, organoids form very complex tissue that resemble very closely the various parts of the developing human brain. I actually have a question about the organoids in that
1: bioreactor, are they actively spinning around the flask like an orbit, <laughs> like a planet <laughs> around the sun?
2: <laughs> so, so the, the medium is exchanging but very slowly. So you have to imagine this, like, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this turns very slowly. So it's not like spinning. It's not. Uh, but they know. are
1: moving. They're moving. Okay. Yeah. But know. very slowly. Okay, great. And uh, so what did you see within these organoids? Explain yes. to us uh, the
2: fascinating things you saw in there, because I thought yes. it was truly amazing what was in there. So what we did was we actually sectioned those and we used various markers to actually ask what kinds of, what parts of the brain are actually in there. And what we found was a very well-developed human cortex, which is what forms the forebrain, which is the largest part of our brain, uh, and it's the part that we actually are mostly interested in. And uh, we also found other parts of the human brain in there, for example, the ventral cortex, the um And and then uh, the choroid plexus, which is the part that actually forms the the fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid that fills our our, uh, uh, brain cavities and also the spinal cord. And uh, then we also occasionally find other parts like the hippocampus. But what is really amazing about this is that these various parts talk to each other in the right way. So if you look at the neurons that we have in the cortex, there's two kinds of neurons. One are excitatory neurons and then there's inhibitory neurons. And these inhibitor neurons, uh, as our brain develops, actually come from another area, from the ventral cortex. And if we look at our organoids, this migration of the cells from one part of the brain into the other is actually happening properly. And so we can actually demonstrate for the first time that you can generate an organ culture system where various parts of the human brain interact with each other in a problem manner did you see anything
1: similar to a proto mge medial ganglionic eminence or anything like that within the structures or was it just an apical
2: and basal layer uh, so um, we didn't analyze these parts of the of the of the brain we then focused specifically at the cortex and what we found in the cortex is that you know the cortex is divided into the ventricular zone and the cortical plate and uh, and so we, we we found that those areas are all perfectly well recapitulated. And actually, if you take sections through these organoids at the some point during development, then uh, they're almost indistinguishable from 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 uh, uh, let's say a, a mouse cortex at the same at the same time. But then, when you look a bit later at the organoids, they actually start to develop the human-specific features. So, if I can go into details of this a little bit more, so it turns out that actually uh, the human cortex has um, A a group of cells in there, a group of progenitor cells, which you don't find in the mouse. These are called the outer radial glia cells, and they actually act as an amplifier between the the the, the actual progenitor cells and the neurons. So the progenitors make these outer radial glia cells, which then divide a bunch of times to actually generate more neurons. And this explains why we have so many more neurons uh, than the mouse. And these form an entire layer in the developing human cortex which we perfectly well find recapitulated in our organoids.
1: Mm, yeah, I found that fascinating and you know what I really loved was that reelin positive PO layer that you also had besides the TBR uh, layers they were all recapitulated quite nicely within the organoids.
2: Yeah, this is this is pretty cool. So there have been there have been experiments before to generate uh, 3D organ cultures and people actually did find that they generate uh, different types of neurons and express different markers, but we're the first ones to actually show that they form these layers, that they form the first two uh, layers of the developing uh, cortex, and the cells actually segregate from each other into different, um, into the different areas, right? And, uh, and so certainly these organoids recapitulate human brain development to a degree that, that hasn't been possible before.
0: So that, that, that's really cool. And so, Dr. Noblek, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about act, the electrical activity of, of these organoids in these cells. Are you able to do – I know you have some tracings in the, in the paper, but could you explain to the audience, uh, are, these, are these neurons in these cells, are they electrically active? Because we know that's how really neurons are going to do their business through electrical activity.
2: Yeah, that's correct. So we uh, – in order to find this out, what we did was uh, we did um, – we turned it slice cultures. Um, from from these organoids, uh, which is a particular type of culture method that you can use to to actually keep uh, uh, slices of of, of the, the developing brain intact, and uh, we then use calcium imaging. So we use a, a dye that actually sends out a fluorescent uh, uh, that sends out a light signal uh, whenever the calcium concentration in the cell changes, which is typically what happens during an action potential. Um, ideally, we would have liked to do electrophysiology on them. The problem with that is that uh, we have to section these organoids blind. So when you, when you uh, look at one of these organoids, you don't really know where it's up or where it's down. They're spherical structures. And uh, so, electrophysiology would have been incredibly difficult. But uh, instead, we did this the calcium imaging, and we can actually see that the neurons are active. And what's really cool is that we can actually show that you need synaptic activity. So you can stimulate the synapses by adding glutamate, and then you get more of these action potentials. And you can inhibit the synapses by uh, using TTX, um, and uh, then you lose the the action potentials. And so. Uh, through that, we get indirect evidence saying that uh, the neurons are actually active through somatic connections. Okay,
1: well, that's great, uh, Chris. Did you have any more questions for uh, Dr. Nablick?
0: Um I just on a on a on a time scale. Could you just tell me how long from the start of you know neural induction, the beginning protocol, to the time where you actually see these organoids
2: and you can actually analyze them? What's the total time frame there? So uh, it depends on what, type, what, what uh, stage of brain development you want to study, but uh, it typically takes between two to four weeks.
1: Okay, and do they just keep
2: growing and growing,
1: or after a while do they atrophy?
2: They uh, are alive for a very long time. We have some of them in culture for over a year, and we can show that they're still, they're still living. Uh, don't grow. They grow to about a size of 3 to 4 millimeters, and then they stop. And what we think is the limiting factor is that um, uh, there's, there's a lack of oxygen. So they, when they grow to a certain size, the center of uh, the organoids uh, stops proliferating. And uh, there's a lot of apoptosis then. And uh, we think that this is because there is no blood supply. So there's no blood vessels in our organoids, and that's why... Do you think Uh, that's a future direction, is to somehow vascularize the organoids? That's that's clearly the next step to achieve, whether we or another lab. I mean, there's a number of labs working on this kind of stuff. But uh, whether we or the other labs are going to be able to do that, uh, uh, I cannot predict. But certainly, it's going to be the next step.
1: I would love for somebody such as yourself to pair up with somebody such as Dr. Shaheen Rafi at Cornell and do some sort of vasculature hybrid uh, organoids, where maybe we could see how far this uh, system can go. I
2: mean, it's seems- uh, we, we are certainly in close contact with other labs who, who are working on this, and and uh, and we, we are, we're taking various approaches. It's not so simple.
0: Oh, I'm know? sure it's not. So, no,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm sure. So, so we've, tr- we've tried the simple things, right? If you just <laughs> take vascular endothelial cells, you make some blood vessels. You can make a co culture, and you get. <laughs> a few tubes forming inside, but you don't get some, you know, you have to have them properly connected as well. Right. And so um, that is not so easy. As anyone
1: who's ever perfused a mouse brain before, uh, that's, that's uh, they're all familiar with uh, the process <laughs> of the vascularization. But and, so, um, uh, just moving on. Uh, we're gonna leave the paper really quickly. And uh, yeah. So,
0: congratulations on that. Before we close, because that's really awesome. Really nice work. Thank you. That was really great. Well, thank you. And um, we uh want to ask you just for the lay audience out there, what
1: what you think the quickest therapies with stem cell uh technology will come from. In general? Yes, yeah, in general. In general terms, you know, we,
0: when we talk, we talk to our uh, audience about, we, sorry. General, we talk, uh, yes. Sorry? Sorry, no, go ahead.
2: You go ahead. So there's a couple of clinical trials uh, that are out there. Um, I think the, the, the next hope is macular degeneration. That's uh, a degeneration of the of the retina in the eye. And uh, there's some very promising results, which are now in clinical trial. And uh, if you would ask me for the next, uh, 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 for the next, um, step, I think that could be one. But then on the other hand, you know, science is inherently unpredictable and uh, I wouldn't be too surprised if a year from now we would be talking about something totally different that all of a sudden emerges and then so I, I, I find it kind of dangerous to actually uh, 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 you know, predict exactly where the therapies are going to come. Um, I mean, as we all know, uh, the basic research moves actually fairly quickly, uh, but what is actually really difficult is then to bring these things into the clinic to do clinical trials which can which can take a number of years and uh, and uh, so we can look at the clinical trials that are going on, some of which i 've just mentioned, uh, and then predict that those are going to be the next phases of therapy but um, there is also uh, uh, basic research is moving really fast and so uh, it's it's very unpredictable. And finally,
1: uh we just want to wrap this interview up with you and ask you for a good story uh for anything that's happened in your postdoc or uh even professorship uh that, you know, through the whole scientific process, any memorable stories uh you may want to share?
2: Well, actually my lab is mostly working with fruit flies, right? And that's actually uh, something that I that I uh, developed during my time as a diploma student, where uh, I mean, I think it's kind of like a uh, uh, interesting instruction for those ones who are listening here uh, to to for 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 a moderate degree of disobedience, uh, because I I did my di- my my master's thesis working trying to working my my uh, butts off on, 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 on trying to to work to, to to identify new exon guidance molecules in the chicken. And uh, that didn't work out for about one year, and they got so desperate that I went over to the neighboring lab, which is working on flute flies, uh, without the knowledge of my supervisor. And uh, then I got some cDNA from them, and within two or three weeks, uh, I managed to clone a new exome guidance molecule, develop a loss-of-function phenotype, uh, show its expression, and, and, and that was pretty cool. Um
0: that's that is a real, That's a really cool story. See that? So, so for all you grad students out there, uh, you know, you never know. You got to take your chances sometimes. It might pay off for you. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us,
1: and uh, we really look forward to more research that comes out of your lab. Thank you. Okay. Yes, Thanks. thank you very much. Nice talking with you. All right. Take care. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. So, uh, Chris, why don't we wrap this podcast up? What do you say?
0: You want to give it a nice old stem cell rant real quick? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think a good stem, a stem cell rant is in order. I actually have one that I'm going to bring up because it happened today.
0: Oh, yes. I yep. love when it's fresh. I love so, when the rants are fresh. What so, do
1: you got? So I'm working in the culture hood, and uh, I, I listen to podcasts all the time. It's like a second education for me. And uh, somebody is listening to uh Pandora in the lab in the tissue culture room, and it's like blurred lines radio. I mean, Wait,
0: now headphones or on the speaker
1: on the speaker, which oh, is how man. it always is, and it's always the cheesiest music, which I don't mind per se. But when I'm trying to listen to my podcast, I can't hear myself think, let alone. You know, Ira Flato on Science Friday. So <laughs> it's, uh, it, I, so I turned down the speaker. I was like, I can't hear my podcast. And, uh, someone else in the lab was like, well, don't turn it down too low, which I probably did, you know, cause it was rocking before. And then, uh, it just became the source of tension. And I'm thinking in my head, buy some headphones. But, you know, it's like, uh, I, you know, half the lab, people wear headphones and it's like they go to work and they don't talk to anybody because they're listening to their thing and doing their thing and i feel like that's a bad thing in terms of personal communication in the lab but you know it's also i would never give up my podcast because i'm learning so much so it's yeah but you see
0: here's my thing if you're in the culture hood, how much conversation are you having anyway you know You're doing your work. You're doing your business. Yeah, I'm not going to turn to you and talk about the day. I'm in there feeding myself. I'm doing my business. I got headphones in. I feel that, like, you shouldn't take over and be a community music player for everyone there. You want to listen to music in the hood. Put your headphones in. And then when you're done, we'll talk later. Take your headphones out. I don't like this whole overriding, you know, because people, you know, people have different tastes in music. So what's the rule? Whoever gets there first you know?
1: uh, yeah, that's uh, how it's been going, at least. But, you know, I, not everybody has an iPhone or headphones or podcasts or yeah, any of that true. stuff. So that's it's true. like you got to you got to accommodate for the old school way of doing things with the new school way, I guess. I, I don't I just it happened
0: today and I figured that's a perfect stem cell rant. Now, man, that I've been there and I still am there because in my lab, sometimes I go in and they got the worst music on and I'm just like, what the heck is going on in here, man? You guys got to put some headphones in here. (laughs) But anyway, so what we're going to try to do, everybody, if you got, you know, we're going to rant it up. And so what you guys can do, if you're following us out there, if you got some ideas, you can hit us up uh, on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. You can follow us there and give us some ideas of what your rants are. You can contribute to the rant. Um, but I think Yos, we should close it down for episode one. Um, thank you, everybody. Thanks, Yos. Thank you, Dr. Jürgen Noblik, for contributing. And uh, we will be back at you uh, with episode two, uh, kicking you guys with some of the latest stem cell topics and stem cell news. All right, Yos? Yeah, I think that'd uh, be great, man. It was a good recording, and
1: uh, definitely thanks to Jürgen there. He gave a great interview. So, yeah, that,
0: uh, that's really awesome. I look forward to doing that more because it gives. and That's a cool story told. Yeah, See that? yeah, yeah.
1: Definitely. So uh not bad for a good first episode. Let's uh close it out. Have a
0: good one, Chris. All right, yo, let's take it easy, man. Bye everybody.